0: Everton Wagstaff is a source of inspiration to me that I am just super grateful to have. I, I His talk that he gives at the end of the episode that you're about to hear, which was, you know, just stream of consciousness, man, he dropped some knowledge that uh, I really needed to hear. And I think a lot of other people do, too. So please listen all the way through to the interview I did with Everton Wagstaff back Uh, when it first aired on February 27th of 2017. The good news is, finally, after suffering through over two decades of wrongful imprisonment, Everton received a $14.6 million settlement in June of 2017. Everton, you deserve all the happiness in the world, and I wish you blessings on blessings. You are a hero to me. with the police banging on the door open up the choice to be in that lineup was the last
4: choice i made as a free man a year later i ended up right in the system
2: i'm going to be one of those people who everyone in the world is going to think is a monster or suspect is a monster for the rest of my life and i'm just going to have to come to peace with that
1: Somebody was able to look at my picture in a database and say that I was somewhere where I
4: definitely wasn't. I overheard three of the jailers discussing what part they might have to play in my hanging. They had been told that two prison officers would have to participate in my execution.
1: And I walked back inside that prison for the last time, man. All hell broke loose, man.
0: In 1992, Everton Wagstaff was arrested and charged with the kidnapping, rape, and murder of a 16-year-old girl, Jennifer Negron, in Brooklyn, New York.
5: Wagstaff and another man who he didn't know, Reginald Connor, were both convicted for the girl's brutal killing.
0: His arrest and conviction were based almost entirely on the word of a drug-addicted sex worker, a heroin addict named Brunilda Capella, who claimed falsely that she discovered the body.
2: He spent 23 years behind bars and spent even longer than that fighting a legal battle against the justice system. Tonight, this Brooklyn man is finally free. Everton Wagstaff's wrongful conviction has been overturned.
0: He ultimately served almost 23 years in prison and survived based on an incredible positive attitude and a will to live and persevere. He was exonerated in 2014 and he's here today. This is his story.
4: I was so curious about coming to this country, America. (laughs) A year later, I ended up writing the system.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today's guest is the one and only Everton Wagstaff. And you'll understand why I say the one and only after you get to hear his incredible story and his unique perspective and wonderful attitude about everything that he's been through and about the world in general. Everton, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: So Everton, we have a tradition here at Wrongful Conviction. We start at the beginning, Mm. and then we work through the whole story right to the present. Starting back at the beginning, you're originally from Jamaica, right? Yes. And not Jamaica Queens.
4: No, Jamaica, actual Jamaican island, the Jamaica right. island.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know everybody's always giving you a hard time about the Jamaican bobsled team, but that wasn't you. That was some other guys. Yeah. Tell me about growing up in Jamaica. First of all, did you have a happy life there? What was it like?
4: Yeah, I was happy. I grew up with my grandparents. We pretty much have the basic necessities. We weren't like in need of anything, you know. Pretty much live off the land. Nothing to complain about. It was fairly really well.
0: And you came here in your young 20s. What led you to make the decision to come to New York? It's was a big change.
4: Well, you know what? I've always heard about America. And I said, whoa, what's in I was so curious about coming to this country. I've been seeing all these things.
0: Had you ever been here before? No. you never been here and you just decided to move? Exactly. That's, That's pretty brave.
4: <laughs> and, you know, I was curious about here, but a year later, I ended up right in the system. I mean... Unfortunately,
0: yeah. I mean, that's a rude awakening. Yes, like a very—it's yes. not welcome to New York, right? <laughs> exactly. The exactly. opposite of welcome. Exactly. To New York. Exactly. So, so you were living in Brooklyn, right, when you got here?
4: Yeah, I was living in Brooklyn. Yeah, I, I reside in the Bronx with my mom. Uh, you know, then I live on my own in Long Island with a former girlfriend.
0: So you moved around a little bit. Yes, yes. And what were you doing to make a living while you were here in the beginning?
4: Well, I used to do a little construction with my stepdad. He used to be one of those guys that helped with the Brooklyn Bridge.
0: So you came to America in what year? Late 89, 90, early 90s. And a year later, everything
4: went wrong. Everything went, went wrong,
0: yeah. Which is a crazy story. I mean, there was a lot of crime in New York back then, <laughs> and there was a lot of pressure on the police to solve crimes. Mm, yes. And there was a terrible crime that happened at that time. A young girl, 16-year-old girl, Mm -hmm. was kidnapped, raped, and murdered. Mm -hmm. So naturally, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the cops to resolve this Mm -hmm. and restore some faith or some calm to the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they ended up getting not only one wrong guy, but two wrong guys. They ended up getting you and another guy. Yes. And they managed to arrest and ultimately convict you without any physical evidence exactly which is it's a crazy story i mean we hear so many crazy stories here on wrongful conviction take us through it so where were you did they come and kick in your door or like how did how did you end up getting arrested and and what were you thinking at the time
4: actually i was on a payphone in east new york and uh, a unmarked car came up and uh took me off the phone and said that they uh, and said they was going to take me to the precinct to check something out, and that was it. I ended up getting interrogated for this crime. They asked me where I was between such and such a time. I tell them I was nowhere in the area. I was in Long Island, and they keep saying that uh, they have a witness who can say that I committed a crime and so forth and so on, and I tell them that I didn't commit a crime, that they have the wrong person. So they had me in the prison from at least from about 12 or 11 in the afternoon until about one o'clock, 12, one o'clock midnight, so they put me in this lineup. They have this girl came in. I didn't know who it was at that time. Came in and they say I was identified as another person who committed the crime. You know, I was like, "This is impossible. I didn't commit a crime. I didn't know these people. I was not in the era at the time. You guys say I was never in that era."
0: At the time you were interrogated, did you have a lawyer or no. anybody else? No. And, no and, lawyer. Nothing. And so you're new in this country. Yes. And it's it's got to be totally bewildering and and overwhelming. Did they threaten you?
4: Well, they didn't make a lot of fun of I me mean, because I told them that I I needed to speak to a lawyer, and they asked me who I want want me to get. If they want me to get Jacobian and Myers or something like that. <laughs> for those of you, who, for those of you who aren't from New
0: York, Jacobian <laughs> wires Myers is sort of a punchline because they're always advertising on TV. Anyway, that's why he brought it up. So, yeah, so they're so they're making fun of you. They're probably bored too because you're in there for twelve hours, right? So did they give you anything to eat or drink or anything like that? So you're just sitting in this room for 12 hours, and they're coming in and out, and the typical interrogation. Yes. No videotaping, no nothing. Nothing, nothing. But you didn't admit to
4: anything? No. You know, I wouldn't admit to something I didn't do.
0: No. And ultimately, the whole situation got really surreal, right? Because they were so desperate, it seems like, in retrospect, to get a conviction— that they went to pretty extraordinary lengths to frame you. Mm-hmm. And talk to me about the other guy who was convicted at the time.
4: Oh, his name was Reginald Actually, I Actually, didn't know Reginald O'Connor. We were never friends, never hang out or anything like that. They pretty much put us together. So
0: Reginald Cotton was your co-defendant yes. in the trial. He also was convicted. Mm-hmm. I was wondering whether you guys had even known each other, but no, it was just random. Were you in jail awaiting trial? Were you out on bail? I was in jail in Rikers Island. In Rikers Island? Yes. That's a hell of a place to be in jail. <laughs> was it as bad back then as it is now?
4: Probably it was worse then.
0: How long were you in Rikers uh, awaiting the trial?
4: About a year and a few months ago. If you say that very casually, that's
0: a long time, <laughs> especially in that place. <laughs> it, is, it was. How much was bail?
4: Yeah, it was then bail, set.
0: No bail. You, well, yeah, I guess it was a, a kidnapping, rape, murder, and murder of a child. Yes, yes. So yeah, they didn't set any bail. So you're stuck there. A year and a quarter goes by, and you're finally brought to trial. First of all, were you tried together or separately? Together. Together with yes. this guy who you didn't know. Had you met him in Rikers? Was he there as well?
4: Actually, when I went to court, that's when I first saw him. I know that we were charged together. Right. I didn't see. We didn't stay in the same facility when we were on the island. So, so you didn't get to know each other at and, all. On the island, no. It's when I went to the court, I saw him there, and I was asking what's going on. And he was clueless, just as I.
0: Of course he was, because he was innocent, too. <laughs> exactly.
4: Right. So you
0: you were partners in this nightmare, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Strangers who were thrown together. Pretty much, yes. By this nightmare of police and prosecutorial misconduct and various other factors that led to you being stuck in this situation. You're such a positive person, and you have such an amazing outlook. But when you went to trial, you must have been somewhat skeptical, because by now you had been, you knew you were innocent. Mm -hmm. It seemed obvious from everything that I know about the case, it would be really hard for even a corrupt system to say, let's pin it on this guy. I mean, they knew you were innocent. Did you think... That justice would be served, or were you at this point thinking, "I'm, I'm going down. They're going to do whatever they have to do to get me."
4: Actually, when I was on, let's reverse back back to Rockers Island. When I was on the island, I pretty much, I wasn't really doing anything to help to clear myself. I was just saying that they had to run in person, and eventually they're going to get it right before they even go to any trial. Because I was telling myself that I did not commit the crime, and they, there's no person in the right mind who's going to come and testify to a crime that I know that I didn't commit. That. There's no way. So I wasn't really doing anything. I was just like, you know, just like probably just hanging out, you know, young, 20, 22, 20, 21 years old. I was just hanging out there and saying, they're going to get it right. Until when I went to trial, they actually had this um, girl who actually was not in her right mind because she was an addict. And let's talk about her for a minute, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Because this is where the story gets really crazy. The witness against you wasn't just some random person it was actually a heroin addict yes. who was completely strung out so strung out in fact that she had to be kept in a locked room mm-hmm. prior to the trial for mm-hmm. 3 days mm-hmm. so that they would be sure that she would show up and be somewhat sober mm-hmm. in order to testify yes, right yes. we know now that she was used in up to 20 cases Other cases yes they would wheel her out whenever they needed somebody to testify Against somebody who they didn't have any evidence against. Here would come Brunilda, the heroin addict. And who knows what favors they were doing for mm-hmm. her, because we know back then in Brooklyn, there was a lot of framing going on, there were a lot of deals being made. Mm-hmm. With witnesses, Mm -hmm. which could have involved something as basic as dropping charges against them or even favors that may have been done that would involve cash or drugs or who knows. Because this was a pretty big favor she was doing them Mm -hmm. to testify falsely and perjure herself to help them resolve a case that they really didn't want to have to deal with Mm -hmm. in the correct manner. But the idea that this woman, who was obviously morally bankrupt and completely just out of her mind... exactly. Would be used in 20 cases. I mean, that's something to really reflect on and say. And, and of course, it would require someone with oversight of the whole situation to be able to tie all those together and go, wait a minute. How lucky could she be that she witnessed 20 different murders? Incredible. But you didn't know about that while you were at Rikers? No. You didn't know that they were going to wheel out this heroin addict no, to testify against no, you? no, until the trial. So, in other words, so you were actually, and you had reason to expect that you would be exonerated because you knew they couldn't have any
4: evidence against you. Because I know didn't commit a crime.
0: So you still had faith in the system and you still thought you're going to go to trial. Mm-hmm. They're going to figure out they made a big actually, mistake.
4: Actually, I thought they wasn't going to go to a trial. They were going to find out who committed a crime before they even took me to trial because I, I didn't commit a crime.
0: Right. But the bad news is, as we know, that when they arrested you, mm-hmm. they stopped looking for the guy. So you go to trial. Together. How long did the trial last? You had a court-appointed lawyer, I'm assuming, because yes. you didn't have money, right? Yes, yes. And was your lawyer, did he seem interested? Was he competent? Was he...
4: At that time, I thought he was doing his best, you know, because I didn't know pretty much anything about the judicial system and, and the representation one that you should be getting. I just.
0: Did he come to the prison and meet with you and interview No, never. he's shaking his head. Never. No, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> so he never came to interview you. I'm actually not a lawyer, but I do have some common sense. And it would seem like anybody who's going to represent somebody in a case in which their life is literally at stake might want to take the time, take one afternoon and say, you know what, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to skip my golf game today and go over to Rikers and see what the Everton has to say, see if he's got any information that might be helpful. But that didn't happen.
4: No. I guess when you're indigent, you don't, you're not that fortunate.
0: We know that public defenders are overworked, underpaid. Overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of very good ones, but you have to be lucky Mm -hmm. to get one of those. Mm -hmm. It's almost like like a lottery. Like a
4: niggling on a haystack.
0: Yeah. Then comes the moment. So the jury goes out. They come back in.
4: They form a guilty and second-degree kidnapping because the judge initially dismissed the murder, take away them because they said there wasn't any evidence. Right,
0: and and, and that's interesting, too, because the judge— let's just reflect on that for a second. The judge— refused
4: to submit the murder
0: charge to because submit of the murder lack of charge. evidence. Because of lack of evidence. That's very powerful words. So there was no evidence of that, but he allowed the kidnapping charge to go forward. Mm-hmm. Even, there was no evidence to that either. Well, Capella, was,
4: the Capella, the addict.
0: There was phony of, right, Bunilda Capella. Yes. And other than that, not only didn't they have any physical evidence against you because there was no DNA, there was no blood, there was no traces of anything. No anything. But they also withheld evidence that would have proved that you were innocent at the time. And it took you a long time to discover that. So the kidnapping charge goes forward. There was a headband, Mm -hmm. right? So this was another phony piece of evidence. There was a headband, a black headband, I believe, that was found in the car, which they
4: claimed. Actually, they're saying that crime scene investigators discovered numerous items inside a car. But this particular headband, they said, belongs to the victim and one of the reasons why the prosecutors said it belongs to the victim because they said that there was this violent struggle in the car between me and the victim and during this violent struggle the headband was ripped up as a result of the violent confrontation between me and the witness and the evidence proved that this car is the car because of this headband but probably a, a month after the trial or so the headband was destroyed because if it was kept into evidence it would have been tested and it would have proven that it did not belong to the victim but one of the one of daughter. And I think the the prosecutors or the police knew this. That's why they get rid of it. So there wasn't any evidence or even tests.
0: Right. So let's just think about this for a second. So there's a violent struggle in the car. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you can't see Everton, but he's a big, strong guy, very muscular guy. And there's a 16-year-old girl. So there's a violent struggle, but there's no blood. There's no physical evidence.
4: No here. But there's a headband. A headband.
0: That's all that happened with this violent struggle. Exactly. So... You have to suspend a lot of disbelief to get to that point. But furthermore, going off of what you said, later on it was discovered that the owner of the car, the same person who said that the car had been at the church service until 5.30 in the morning, in which case it would have been impossible for this car to be used Mm -hmm. in the crime at the time that the only witness said that it was, Mm -hmm. that same person also said that that headband belonged to their daughter. Yes. So the problem is... They didn't turn that evidence over to the defense. It was destroyed. It was destroyed. But it was found later. I mean, they, they had an interview. The evidence was destroyed, but they had an interview with the owner of the car, mm-hmm. which they did not turn over, and that had to be discovered years and years later. Mm-hmm. Had they turned that over, the whole case falls apart.
4: Exactly. Because the, the detective had to to her to uh, ask her about her car. And she told him that her car couldn't have been used in a crime because she was using it at that particular time. Anything that would have undermined the people's case was never turned over to us.
0: Right. That's, again, that's where I really, I, I just, I have a hard time processing that stuff. You know, it's like, I, I don't understand. I've never, you know, I have a lot of respect for law enforcement. I mean, we need, we need a justice system. Exactly. We need prosecutors. We need cops. You know, it was like when I was growing up, Uh, In the 70s, there was a a bumper sticker that said, you don't like cops, next time you're in trouble, try calling a hippie, right? (laughs) And so I'm very cognizant of the fact that they play a very important role in society, and I have a lot of respect for the fact that they work in a dangerous job. Nobody's getting rich doing it. Mm -hmm. But the bad guys, the bad actors in the system inflict so much damage, and the fact that they are able to, like I'm trying to take myself inside the mindset of these detectives who went to interview this woman Learned at that moment that you were innocent as was Reginald and just chose to ignore it because it was more convenient for them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to wrap this case up and move on with their life and then they went home they ate dinner and did whatever they did played with their kids and it's, it's a hard one for me I don't know maybe uh, I just can't uh, I'm never going to be comfortable with that but that's what happened and now the jury comes back in mm-hmm. Tell me about that moment.
4: Actually, my mother was sitting in the courtroom, and the jury came back and they said that they reached a verdict. The judge asked, "What was the verdict?" And he said, "I was guilty of second-degree kidnapping." My mom actually screamed out in the courthouse, and it was like totally shocking. I mean, it was totally unbelievable to me. When you know, when when I heard that, because I said. I didn't, you know, I did not commit this crime. How, how could I? How could you people actually find me guilty of a crime? I know I did not commit. You know, so I was just like, like, just standing, like shocked. Did you say anything? Did you? I just tell you, I did not commit a crime. You said so. Yes, I did not commit any crime. And then
0: they took you away. Yeah.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
0: So now your sentence was 12 and a half to 25 years. Yes. The problem with that is, aside from the fact that you were innocent mm-hmm. and that you shouldn't have been in the system in the first place, the problem is that 12 and a half to 25 could actually mean life because when you're sentenced to 12 and a half to 25, you're eligible for parole after a period of time. Mm-hmm. But in order to get parole, you have to express remorse. Mm-hmm. You have to which is essentially the same as admitting guilt. Yes. And I want to get to that, but first I want to talk about your experience in prison because we've spoken about it before, and it's quite remarkable that you are this joyful, is the best way I can describe your attitude about life. And I know from having spent time with you and and talked about your years, your decades in prison, that you maintained an upbeat and positive attitude through a situation that would have broken down a different man, a different person. What did it? How did you do it?
4: Well, you know, I I know I was innocent of this crime. I know I had truth on my side. I know that somebody was lying about this crime and I know it was not, I wasn't the one lying about it. I know it didn't commit a crime. And I, I was telling myself that I have to do something about it because we have to show that the truth means something. If I just sit there and just didn't do anything, that means I would, it it would be a betrayal to the truth. I mean, so I had to do something. If it mean I have to sacrifice, well, so be it. And actually at first I didn't even pretty much have an education about the judicial system, the police reports and all these things. I, it's after having gone through a lot of studying, I get books, and rent books because I used to work in the general library, interlibrary loan books. I rent books from the outside, study what paperwork means what and all these things and try to compare them and do some contrasting and all these things. And it was just during this time that I actually went and um, found those reports. And I tell myself that I could not have just sit there and just like throw a pity party or anything like that. You understand? I could not do that. I have to fight. I have to do what I have to do. And that's the only way I would be I would have been vindicated. And I went to took the legal research course inside here. I passed it and got a paralegal certificate where I could you know, work in the law library and help other inmates. And while I was doing these things, these are the things that actually keeps me going. I used to read books, uh, newspapers, articles that came through the Law Library and the General Library where other people were being um, vindicated you know, of crime that they didn't commit. Come so it's, these are some of the things that I have seen that actually give me some sense of hope because I say, you know, one day it's gonna be me because I know the truth eventually is gonna vindicate me. Were you angry? When I f- was first convicted, I actually sit and cry and ask God, why me? You know I didn't commit this crime, God. Why did, I, why did you allow this to happen to me? And I asked a friend of mine who was there, and he said to me, his question was, because God knew what you was going to do, that you was going to fight it, probably for something else that you probably did in the past or something like that, that. Probably you would have just sit back and just been indifferent to it. But God know that you did not commit this crime, and you know that you would have fight the way you did right now. You were fighting, and that's the reason probably why. And I, and I said, it makes sense.
0: But it's it's interesting because having spoken to so many and 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 I've been very fortunate to be able to spend time and learn from literally hundreds of exonerees over the years I've been doing this you know they ha- they all have a different version of what you're saying some of them went in angry bitter scared but then they turned it around somehow but it sounds like to me like you you were like steadfast like at first you had your moment you allowed yourself to cry. And then it sounds like you just bounced up. You That's had this it. one guy who was like a mentor kind of like, who, who sort of steered you
4: mm-hmm, spiritually mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jason, listen to this. There wasn't any time to throw pity party or anything like that. There wasn't any time to be bitter. It is something that has to be done. And there wasn't any other way to do it but through me. I, actually, I used to rely on other people to help me to fight my case to write stuff because I couldn't even write properly. You understand I used to have to rely on inmates to actually read some of the stuff with me and try to explain to me to me, to, to me about some of these issues. And I said to myself, you know what? I, if I'm going to prove that I'm innocent, I cannot be real. I can't expect to rely on these people to do something for me that I should be doing for myself. And so that's when I started to actually get books, I started to like, I, I, when I passed my GED, because that's where I got my GED, college course, was, they were be taking out the college course, out the, school, the, the, the prison system. So what I did when I work in the general library, I used to study, do my own independent study inside there, study, read books, all different books inside there, and educate myself on the general library. Because I realized that I was on a mission and I can just—it is no time for to be bitter, to, to carry any animosity, because all that was going to do is defeat the whole purpose. Because I, why would, why should I conspire with something that I already have, me dear? But enough, I was already doing time for something I didn't do. So why would I choose to hate, or choose to be bitter when it's not going to help me, it's not going to cause me more harm than anything else. I didn't have any time for that.
0: But you realize that is a very advanced spiritual practice almost. And it's so extraordinary for me, and I think many others who are listeners or fans of the show, it's really uh, powerful to hear you and others who've been through this talk about that because I've never been through anything vaguely resembling the stuff that you've been through. But I think it's good for you to know, and I hope you know, that it's so inspiring, you know, to be able to take what you're saying and try to incorporate that into daily life and take a more you know zen for lack of a better word approach to the to life's daily problems Mm -hmm. and so i appreciate you sharing that you know personally and i'm sure there's a lot of people who will be able to draw and and have a a happier day or week or life Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. a result of hearing your voice i think that's that's really an amazing it's phenomenal there came a point Mm -hmm. when you were eligible for parole yes at this point, you had contacted the Innocence Project mm-hmm, by now, and the, mm-hmm. but you hadn't heard back yet as to whether the case had been or had, or had you.
4: No, they were interacting, like writing, corresponding with me about the case and so forth, and the evidence had been. Actually, it took a while for them to discover any evidence in my case, because at first they said could, the evidence could not be found. Right. And it was after Jim Dwyer wrote an article about it, because during that time, this guy here, he was just, he was in the Bronx. Alan Newton, they had a problem finding his evidence. Yes, they did. And then eventually, they went back 10 years later and found the evidence in the exact place where it was 10 years earlier. So So what Jim did, he combined both cases and showed the problem of finding DNA evidence that would exonerate innocent people. So after the articles, the DNA evidence was eventually found.
0: Yeah, Jim Dwyer, for those of you who haven't read his stuff, is a fantastic investigative reporter in New York. And and this is not atypical, right? The Innocence Project, before we take a case, we have to find out. If we have to do the research to find out if there's evidence that, so that we can help. Exactly. So you were sort of in between, but you had hoped that the Innocence Project might take your case. Exactly. But you also had another option, right? Which is that your parole yes. was coming up, mm-hmm. but you took a very principled stand, at this point in time, which is, I think, a hard one for some people to understand because you literally had, at a certain point, an option of getting out of prison if you would have done certain things. Yes. But you refused. Yes. So let's talk about that.
4: Well, Jason, the parole board is there for people who committed a crime. You understand? And why would I go to a board to admit or to show remorse for something that I know I didn't commit?
0: Well, you, would, you refused to even go to the parole board. Yes. Right. And that's, again, that's a, that's a heavy thing, I think, for a lot of, you know, for me, it's amazing because people would think, well, you've got to get out of prison. I've got to get out of here, right? But you were not going to do that. You were not going to admit to really a brutal, terrible crime.
4: Exactly. And then that would just subject me to register as a sex offender. And not only that, but I would be dictated when and where to go and when to go to bed or when to sleep or something like that.
0: So it would be like being in prison on e- the outside. Exa- exactly. And you were going to stand and fight for what was right, even if it meant spending the rest of your life in prison. Even
4: if it meant spending the rest of my life inside It's, it's incredible. Because I would be a freer man inside it than I would if I to come, come out here.
0: Yeah, so it's almost like a double penalty. But Reginald chose to take the other option. Yes. And I and I can certainly, as I said, I can relate to that. I, I think it's, it's almost like a Sophie's Choice, right? You mm-hmm. have two options, and they're both bad. One is you admit guilt... In essence,
4: Well, I don't think Reggie actually admit guilt because his lawyer had written paperwork to the board professing his innocence, proclaiming his innocence and everything. Right. So I guess that's play a factor in his release too in 2004.
0: But did he have to register as a sex offender and all that stuff? Yes. If he was innocent, he wouldn't have to register. Exactly. exactly. Right. So, you know, and and the other problem with that is, of course, if you accept those conditions or terms, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm you forego any opportunity to sue for your wrongful conviction, right? You have to sign those rights away, essentially. So it's a very, very difficult decision to have to make. And what happened? How'd you uh, eventually win your freedom?
4: Conditional release came up for me to to be released. This is when all you had to do was just sign a paper and walk out. But again, that would have subjected me to register again as a sex offender. And I refused to sign those papers. So 10 years earlier on the parole board, probably I would have been paroled had I gone to the board. And and and, and then five years after my uh, conditional release, had I signed the paper, then I would not have to spend five extra years in prison. But I refused to sign that paper, and I tell myself that I was going to be freed. I know the truth was going to vindicate me sooner or later. And
0: we know that it did, But or you wouldn't be here now, but, I, but let's talk about that. So the Innocence Project took your case. Mm-hmm. And eventually, 2014.
4: Yeah, well, I was during that time. I was. I had uh, Beldock helping too with my case. He was doing the part where there's no involvement of DNA evidence or anything like that. He was studying the police reports and all these things because that's when I started to write everything about what I discovered, showing them what I've discovered and showing that I did not commit the crime, that there was a fabrication, and, and, and you know, showing the reports and all these things
0: and and Beldock again for those who may not know it's myron beldock yes right? so he's a very respected uh, criminal defense attorney in new york and he had taken your case pro bono yes right so now you have two very powerful weapons in your arsenal all of a sudden, right? You went from being basically on your own mm-hmm. to that well, not basically totally on your own, mm-hmm. to having two great organizations advocating.: Exactly. because it was clear to us at the Innocence Project and also to Bell Doc and his firm exactly. that you were an innocent man. Exactly. So how did it end up? We heard about the terrible day when you were convicted. Mm -hmm. We heard about the horrible day when you were arrested. I want to hear about the day when you were exonerated and how did it get to that point and what was that like?
4: (laughs) Well, (laughs) we had initially filed a motion. The motion was denied by Justice Parker. And then we have to file a motion to the appellate court showing why the case should have been dismissed because of the fabrication and the late Brady turnover that showed that the case was actually fabricated against us. So the, dep- the second department looked over the case, took them like six months, six, about six months, and they came back and, and not only did they dismiss their uh, conviction, but they also dismissed the evidence, the um, indictments against us, showing that the, the, pol- the report that should have been sh- turned over to us mm-hmm. at trial was never turned over. And that would show that the detectives and the witness was not forthright with their allegation. They pretty much fabricated the whole thing. They did. I mean, not even pretty much. Yeah, they prob- just straight fabricated, fabricated the whole thing. thing. So I normally call Kim. She was a former correctional officer. She was a pivotal part in my case because she used to help with, like, getting information to the lawyers and so forth. Like Nothing that would jeopardize her job or anything like that. I called a family member, and they told me that there was a decision. Right. And I at first I didn't know. They were hysterical, like crying on the phone and everything. And I, I actually I didn't even know how to feel anymore. I, I just, like— good like you guys can cry let me look over the decision and everything and read it over I should have been like happy excited and everything like that but there was no sense of excitement because again earlier of what the lower court did because here is it my hope was all the way up to the ceiling and they just knock it all the way down but that doesn't stop me from from hoping but this family
0: member who was it was it your was it your mom or a, a, an uncle or who who was it that you spoke to?
4: Well, it was a skim uh, the former correction officer that was there I, I spoke to her by then she had already retired from her job. So did you believe it? You know what I was like I got back something that should not have been taken away from me in the first place. So it's not like, it should not have been taken away from me. Of course. So you didn't have really a sense of joy.
0: It wasn't the mirror image of the despair that you felt. It was more of a thing of just sort of justice is done. And now let me move on with my life. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. It's like a resolute kind of feeling Exactly.
4: Exactly.
1: This is it, your moment.
0: Now, let's get on to the other part of the story, which is incredible, right? Let's talk about love. So Kim is kind of an important figure in your story, right? So Kim was a correction officer in Green Correctional Facility. Yes. And you developed a relationship with her, not a physical relationship, but sort of a a connection with her while you were locked up there. Yes. And then that took on a new meaning when you were released. Everton ended up marrying... Kim, who had been a correction officer in the prison in which he was incarcerated, which sounds uh, like if you put it in a movie, somebody would go, get the fuck out of here. That's impossible, (laughs) but it actually happened. How did that go down?
4: Well, while I was there fighting, working on my case, I worked at the law library where she actually was a supervising officer in that area. She used to work a couple of days there and used to work in the upfront where she would monitor telephone calls. And I normally would call out to my lawyer, and I had this lawyer who was actually representing Connor. I was asking for her help. And I wanted her to actually have other lawyers involved in the case. And I was crying to her, telling her, I don't need sympathy, I need help. You know, and I don't think I've been getting enough help that I should be getting. And I think Kim's overheard this conversation, and she was like somewhat taken aback because she said, Damn, this guy's actually innocent and shouldn't be here. So I guess she developed some feelings there for me then, and then you know, and trying to see what she could do to help while I was there, you know. And then after I, you know, because of what she'd done for me over the years, and I, you know, there wasn't anybody at the time helping. I had no support, pretty much helping me at that time. I was everything was done on my own inside. You have to go to school, educate myself, and study whatever need to be studied. In other words. I was like alone, fighting all these things, and then she came along and tried to help, you know, play you know, help in in, in the process, like can help to contact lawyers, Jim, and so forth and so on, so and of, speak on my behalf. Sort of like an angel in the exactly in the abyss.
0: Exactly, right? so exactly. That's, that's amazing. So, and and ultimately. You know, you resisted any temptation to develop a physical relationship. I had with to. Her. I
4: I could not develop. I, number one, I respect her job. I respect her as a person. I would not have done anything to undermine her job.
0: Right, because she would have been in big trouble. Exactly. That, I mean,
4: so yeah. there was nothing unbecoming inside or anything like that. Nothing.
0: Right, and we and we know that that goes on in prison, right? There's a of, lot of that stuff. a lot have evidence of that? Yes. Yeah, sure, yes. but uh, um, but you but you resisted, which is a you know, we talked about it before. Uh, it's an incredible temptation. You've been alone for over mm-hmm. two decades now, mm-hmm. but you resisted, which was, again, a principled and intelligent and thoughtful and difficult <laughs> thing to do. But the good news is that you eventually were released, she was really almost placed there as somebody to, to,
4: to give you that extra support exactly. that God you needed, put it, Exactly, God right? exactly, I look at it in that sense. And so
0: that was a great thing, and then ultimately you were freed, mm-hmm. and then you contacted her, and a, a relationship developed, and which led to ultimately
4: being married. Right, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and it's because of what she have done, too, yeah, for me, too. I mean, she was there when, again, no one wasn't there, Jason, when I was in the bottom of the pit. You understand? Yeah. So I mean, that's somebody who I could never like break ties with. She embedded a place in my heart at all time. You well, know, so it doesn't matter where I'm at. she's always gonna be in my heart. I mean and and I will always do everything in my power to make the show that she's okay.
0: Well, I mean it's an incredible love story. It's an amazing way to end. But I don't wanna end without going back to your time in prison. You mentioned the education program in the in the prison. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that because I think a lot of people are skeptical, and there's some people out there who say, "Well, why should we pay to educate guys in prison? We don't even we don't pay enough money for the regular education, or whatever they say, right?" And I have a very different view on it, um, not only from a from a public safety perspective, where we know that men and women who have been through an education program in prison when they come out are extremely unlikely to reoffend. Mm-hmm. But how important was it to you to have that education option or that education program available to you in prison?
4: I mean, it was very important because if it wasn't for that, how else would I have helped to educate myself? I mean, even though it, it was taken away when I first got my GED, because again, I think Governor Patrick was the governor at that time, and I, I get some of the public was probably share the same feeling that why should a taxpayer have to pay to have to educate these people, you know, for you know when they are criminals and so forth and so on. But they have to realize, too, that these are the same people who are going to come back and re-enter society. So why not use it as a cause to help them? Exactly. I I think it's critically
0: important that we provide this option for people. And it allows for a sense of hope And I know this from having spoken to other exonerees who've been through it. I mean, even Jeff Deskovic has been on the show. I mean, he said if not for that, he probably would have killed himself in prison because he had nothing else. I'm glad we brought that up. Now, we talked a bit earlier about the things that you derived your inspiration from, Mm -hmm. right? And you talked about some of the books and some of the teachings that allowed you or that helped you or that inspired you to keep a positive attitude and to be able to carry on day after day in this miserable place with the loneliness and the frustration and the, and the, you know, all the other terrible things that come with being in a maximum security prison. It was really the books that did it, wasn't it?
4: Well, a lot of the books did it. And plus, I know that I want to be of help to life, to humanity as a whole. And I'm, I know I could not just sit there and just focus exclusively on my case. What can I do in the meantime while I was working on my case? It was something that I had to do. I couldn't just, like, make it be my number one. So I have to say, you know what? During that case, I I read, especially Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl made a reference that it wasn't the condition that kills him, but the lack of hope. And I have experienced the same thing inside that place where I was because I've seen a lot of guys inside here, Jason. I mean, a lot of guys just like after being hit so many times at the board just gave up and their system just started to fight against them. They have to be put on medication. Some of them just check into um, hospital ward and they, they just went down and just out. I've experienced so many times, I've experienced this particular guy whose very own immune system, Jason, eats away at his own body. Because of lack of hope I've been, been hit so many times at the board and I was so privileged to spoke speak to that guy one day in the library and explain to him that and give tell him my situation and how I will never give up hope and I never even despite it being um, hit so many times at the denied so many times at the parole board not to give up hope to keep fighting keep fighting because eventually you will be released and like actually a few uh, probably a year or so later he was actually i um, released wow. You know, serious. I mean, I, and these are some of the things that I have seen, and and as a result, I told myself, um, Jason, that I could not sit there and feel any pity poor, despite of what happened to me, with despite of the denial at times from the other courts and and everything. I did not allow that to to stop me. At first, at 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 first, yes, I feel done when I first get hit on something like when I was denied and all these things but I didn't dwell on it um, Jason the problem is a lot of us dwell too much when something is done that we think it's wrong do something about it don't just sit about and try to be angry or, 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 or bitter or anything because that's not going to do anything to help find another road that you could go and tackle that problem and get it out of the way
0: so if anybody out there is thinking about having a pity party, they shouldn't invite you because you're not coming. No, I'm not coming I don't <laughs> want to hear it. You're not coming. But no, that's amazing because you actually had a very profound effect on this man who was giving up hope, and you were able to sort I, of snap him back into reality, and then next thing you know, a year later, it's
4: like a, it's like a miracle. Exactly. And you know what? And that's the thing about working where I work, because I, I work both in the general library under the law okay. library, and I was able to meet a lot of people. Who have been have gone to the board so many times and get hit at the board so many times, and I have I was there to like just give them some hope, like speak to them about. Listen, look look at my condition for example.
0: Yeah.
4: I mean, I didn't commit a crime. I'm here suffering as if I've did a crime. But at the same time, I'm not giving up hope because I know I will be vindicated one day. And the same thing that principle that I use to 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 to, to help me to do to maintain my 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 mind, my sanity inside. You can use the same principle, and it doesn't have to be in prison. The same principle could be applied out here by anyone in any situation.
0: Well, that is a message that is as good as any that we could possibly share. And I know it's going to help me and so many others to get through things that we're all going to go through at different times. I do want to just give a quick plug because Everton has been doing some great work uh, helping at-risk youth and working with them, but also going and doing public speaking as, 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 on a professional basis. And so I want to share, if it's all right with you, I want to share your email address mm-hmm. so that people can reach out. Uh, you have been you speak at schools, at colleges, colleges, yeah. corporations, basically anywhere that somebody needs to hear yes, this message uh, yes. of, of tragedy, triumph, and I guess it's optimism, positivity, and strength. I mean, that's really what it is. And so, Everton, your email address is...
4: Make a difference and live at gmail.com.
0: Okay, that's kind of perfect. Make a difference and live at gmail.com, a more appropriate email address I couldn't imagine for a guy like you. So so reach out, and he's a guy you, you really want to get to know better than you can, even just on the podcast. Everton, it's been a real uh, pleasure and a privilege having you on the show. Is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off?
4: Well, it doesn't matter where we are in this world. It don't matter what we are going through. We must always understand that there is always a way out. And sometimes the problem is that we tend to look too much for guidance from our five senses. We have to learn to go beyond those five senses because, example, when I was going through what I was going through, I was in prison, for example, and I, if I was just focusing on my condition, my, my current situation, I would stay depressed and and all these things would have kicked in, hopelessness and all despair would have kicked in. But I realized that there's another side to the five senses that the five senses doesn't understand and will never understand. And that's where we have to learn to dwell in that spiritual aspect of who we are. Because these are the things that help us to elevate any, any mountain, go surmount any problem. And we have to remember that. Do not just dwell on your five senses and what you're going through. Don't focus on those senses. Of course, they are, they are. They are beneficial to us, but they are not the moving factor. They are not the determining factors in our life. They should be just a vehicle that determines that that only take our take instruction from us, the spiritual side of who we are. Remember that we have to know how to steer it and how to guide it. All right. I think that says it all. This has
0: been a very inspiring episode of wrongful conviction. And it's all because of you. Everton, thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me. Wish you all the best. And I'm looking forward to seeing you and and watching you do more and share more wisdom with everybody. I want to. Thank you. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.
5: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at TrinitySchool.org. That's TrinitySchool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's
4: biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.